This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, March 17th, 2018. Episode 52, Concerning St. Patrick and the Magicians. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and this is a sort of surprise episode, coming so close on the heels of the previous one, Um, but it's a special episode in honor of St. Patrick's Day. This one's going to be a bit more text than commentary. Uh, I've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks reading about the court of Henry II for our Walter Mapp episodes uh, and learning a lot of stuff that I ended up not really using in those episodes, uh, though I have no doubt it will come in handy later. But that's left me with not as much time to dive deeply into the history of St. Patrick. And it's a bit of a thorny history, as there's a lot of legend to sift from history and history to extract from legend. To make things even trickier, Patrick is one of these figures who has a lot of partisans, uh, both in medieval history and modern, uh, with different agendas, and on top of that, today's story in particular is entangled with representations of pagan Ireland, another side of debate with fervent partisans. Honestly, I don't feel well-informed enough to even decide which authorities are the most clear-sighted on some of these points, So the upshot is that we can focus on the text and keep the commentary lighter. Lighter, but not absent. Uh, So a bit of table setting. Let's scout out that border between myth and history a little ways. There's a great image from an 1883 article by Monure Conway, who writes, Turning now from the probable to the mythical Patrick, we find a figure which resembles a man only as the Trojan horse resembled a horse. He is full of armed men, a compendium of controversies. It's not really news to anyone anymore, I hope, that two of St. Patrick's most famous accomplishments are mythical. There was no driving of the snakes out of Ireland. Ireland never had snakes. Uh, That's a story that appears in the 12th century, nearly 700 years after Patrick's death. Though Conway's article mentions a theory that this miracle story might be a distorted echo of Patrick actually driving out a sect of serpent worshippers from Ireland. This theory originated with Dr. John Samuel Finney, a notable Victorian architect, antiquarian, and eccentric, who apparently had a fascination with prehistoric serpent worship. I haven't been able to get a clear sense of the status of this theory among modern scholars, but given that Dr. Finney imagined a common ancestry behind prehistoric serpent mounds in Europe and similar mounds in the Americas, I'm guessing that his theory has not prospered under rigorous modern investigation. That said, the little bit of reading I've done on him kind of makes me want to find an occasion to do an episode where we can feature Dr. Finney a little bit more. Anyway, Patrick's other iconic act, the use of the shamrock to illustrate the Trinity, is also pretty widely debunked. It's first recorded in the 1700s. But what about Patrick as the great Christianizer of Ireland? Well, it is fair to say that he planted a lasting seed of Christian belief, but the impression that he converted Ireland to Christianity is pretty far off the mark. It took the rise of monasticism in Northern Europe two centuries after Patrick, before Christianity became a majority religion in Ireland. 
In fact, there was a long-standing debate about whether Patrick really existed at all, and part of the case against Patrick is that he isn't mentioned substantively by any of the major church historians of the early Middle Ages. Bede writes about St. Columba and a predecessor of Patrick, a missionary named Palladius, but appears to have no knowledge of Patrick at all, which certainly seems a bizarre omission if Patrick was Ireland's greatest missionary. That said, the reality of a historical Patrick seems to be pretty well accepted at this point. Uh, Partly that's because we do have texts that he wrote. In fact, they're some of the only 5th century documents from the British Isles to survive. Patrick has his Confessio, an autobiographical testament in a similar vein as Augustine's Confessions, though plainer and shorter, and we also have a letter that he wrote. We also have a couple of very interesting biographies, though these were written down about 200 years after his death. One of these is what we'll hear from today, The Life of St. Patrick by Muricu Macu Macthina. And I'll also just confess myself right here that for most of the Irish names that we're going to get in this text, uh, I'm taking my best stab at pronouncing them. Our translator is already using variant spellings and forms, which make some of these hard to look up, and Old Irish pronunciation aids are in shorter supply than for a lot of the other languages that we encounter. Uh, So, Irish speakers out there, please forgive me. We're going to plunge into this text at chapter 15, so when we meet Patrick, he has already started his mission in Ireland. Uh, We're skipping his fascinating early life, uh, and maybe we'll do the Confessio in March next year, and we can explore his biography further. But this part of the narrative highlights another set of Patrick's miracles— ones that don't get as much play in the modern imagery of Patrick, uh, at least not here in the States. Perhaps Irish schoolchildren get to revel in these more violent and unsettling miracle tales. Uh, This is the saint as superhero, the saint as wonder worker extraordinaire, going up against enemies whose powers almost rival his own. So I entitled this episode, St. Patrick and the Magicians. That's the term our translator uses. Um, another modern translation I've looked at uses the word wizards. Mercury's Latin word is magus. These are magi. And a lot of other sources call them druids. And they are meant to represent the priests of pagan Ireland, but I actually think calling them druids is a bit of a misrepresentation and might even be actively offensive to members of the modern faiths that are based on those traditions because these are a later Christian writer's fantasy of pagan priests. They owe as much to the characterization of Pharaoh's magicians that Moses squares off against in Exodus as they do to any real Irish traditions. In fact, I was dead certain I was going to find that the same word, magus, is used in the Latin Vulgate to describe Pharaoh's wonder workers, Um, but I was wrong. Uh, There, they're called uh, in the Latin text, sapientes, or wise men, and malefici, or evildoers, which is also the usual medieval Latin word for witches or warlocks in the modern usage. I'm not quite sure what connotations Magus would have had for Muricu's audience if it's less negative than malefici, but it does at least lead by a natural etymological path to our translator's choice of magician. Magus, magician. Another quick textual note is that the place Muricu calls Temoria is the Latin form of the Hill of Tara in County Meath. Uh, 
um, which was the traditional seat of the high kings of Ireland. And so let's get on into the text. The historian John Morris calls Mercury's life of St. Patrick, quote, a plain factual narrative as accurate as half-forgotten memories could permit. After you hear today's excerpt, you can decide if you agree with that statement. Um, Personally, I'm left scratching my head a little bit. I think a somewhat more accurate description comes from Alan Hood, who says that, quote, Mercury's style can have a curiously clotted texture. Uh, referring to the author's somewhat overwrought Latin. Fortunately, we're getting it in English translation, of course, from Newport J.D. White, who published the following text in 1920. Chapter 15 of the Heathen Feast at Timoria, the same night on which St. Patrick was engaged in his paschal worship. Now, it happened that in that year the heathen were wont to celebrate an idolatrous feast, with many incantations and magical devices and other superstitions of idolatry. And there were also gathered together kings, satraps, leaders, princes, and chief men of the people, and, moreover, magicians and enchanters and augurs. And those who sought out and taught every art and every wile were called to King Loigra as once upon a time to King Nebuchadnezzar, to Timoria, their Babylon. And it was on the same night that St. Patrick was observing the Paschal Feast that they were celebrating their heathen festival. Moreover, there was a custom amongst them, made known to all by an edict, that whoever in the whole district, whether far off or near, should in that night kindle a fire before one should have been lighted in the royal house, that is, in the palace of Timoria, his soul should be cut off from among his people. Accordingly, St. Patrick, in his celebration of the Holy Paschal Feast, kindled a divine fire, very bright and blessed, which, as it shone forth at night, was seen by almost all the dwellers in the plain. Accordingly, it happened that it was seen from Timoria, and when it was seen, all beheld it and were amazed. And when all the nobles and elders and magicians had been gathered together, the king said to them, What is this? Who is it that has dared to do this impiety in my kingdom? Let him die the death. And all the nobles and elders made answer, We know not who has done this thing. Then the magicians answered and said, O king, live forever. As for this fire which we behold and which has been lighted up this night before one was lighted in thy house, that is, in the palace of Timoria, unless it be put out on this night on which it has been lighted up, it will not be put out forever. Moreover, it will overcome all the fires of our religion, and he who kindled it and the kingdom that will follow from which it is kindled this night will overcome both all of us and thee too, and it will draw away all the men of thy kingdom, and all kingdoms will yield to it, and he will fill all things and will reign forever and ever. Chapter 16 of King Loigra's March from Timoria to Patrick on the Paschal Night When King Loigra had heard these things, he was, like Herod of old, sore troubled, and all the city of Timoria with him. And he answered and said, It shall not be so, 
But now we will go, that we may see the issue of the matter, and we shall take and slay those who do such an impiety against our kingdom. And so, having yoked nine chariots in accordance with the tradition of the gods, and taking with him for the conflict those two magicians who excelled all others, that is to say, Lucetmail and Locru, Loigra proceeded at the close of that night from Tamoria to the graves of the men of Fec, turning the faces of the men and of the horses to the left, in accordance with their notion of what is fitting in such a case. And as they went on their way, the magician said to the king, O king, thou must not go into the place in which the fire is, lest afterwards perchance thou worship him who kindled it. But thou must be outside it, near at hand, and he will be summoned to thee, that he may worship thee, and thou have dominion over him, or be owned as lord. And we and he shall parley with one another in thy presence, O king, and in this way thou wilt test us. And the king answered and said, Ye have advised well, I will do as ye have said. And when they arrived at the appointed place, they alighted from their chariots and horses, and they entered not into the enclosure of the place where the fire had been kindled, but took their seats close by. Chapter 17. How Patrick was called to the king, of the faith of Ark, son of Day, of the death of the magician that night. And St. Patrick was called to the king outside the place where the fire had been kindled. And the magicians said to their people, Let us not rise up at the approach of this fellow, for whoever rises up at the approach of this fellow will afterwards believe in him and worship him. At last St. Patrick rose, and when he saw their many chariots and horses, he came to them, singing with voice and heart, very appropriately, the following verse of the psalmist. Some put their trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. They, however, did not rise at his approach. But only one, helped by the Lord, who was willed not to obey the words of the magicians, rose up. This was Ark, the son of Day, whose relics are now venerated in the city called Shlain. And Patrick blessed him, and he believed in the everlasting God. And when they began to parley with one another, the second magician, named Locru, was insolent in the saint's presence, and had the audacity with swelling words to disparage the Catholic faith. As he uttered such things, St. Patrick regarded him with a stern glance, as Peter once looked on Simon, and powerfully, with a loud voice, he confidently addressed the Lord and said, O Lord, who canst do all things, and in whose power all things hold together, and who hast sent me hither, as for this impious man who blasphemes thy name, let him now be taken up out of this and die speedily. And when he had thus spoken, the magician was caught up into the air, and then let fall from above and his skulls striking on a rock, he was dashed to pieces and killed before their faces, and the heathen folk were dismayed. Chapter 18 Of the wrath of the king and his people against Patrick, and of the stroke of God upon them, and of the transformation of Patrick in the presence of the heathen. Now the king with his people, enraged with Patrick on account of this thing, was minded to slay him, and said, Lay hands on this fellow who is destroying us. Then St. Patrick, seeing that the ungodly heathen folk were about to rush upon him, rose up and with a clear voice said, Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. And straightway darkness came down, and a certain horrible commotion arose, and the ungodly men fought amongst themselves, one rising up against another, and there was a great earthquake, 
and he bound the axles of their chariots and drove them with violence, and they rushed in headlong flight, both chariots and horses, over the level ground of the Great Plain, till at last only a few of them escaped, half alive, to the mountain of Mondurn. And at the curse of Patrick, seven times seven men were laid low by this stroke in the presence of the king and his elders, until there remained only himself and his wife and two others of his companions, and they were sore afraid. So the queen approached Patrick and said to him, O man, righteous and mighty, do not destroy the king, for the king will come and kneel and worship thy lord. And the king, compelled by fear, came and knelt before the saint, and feigned to worship him whom he did not wish to worship. And when they had parted from one another, the king went a little way and called St. Patrick with feigned words, minding to slay him by some means. But St. Patrick, knowing the thoughts of the villainous king, blessed his companions, eight men and a lad, in the name of Jesus Christ, and came to the king. The king counted them as they came, and straightway they were nowhere to be seen, taken away from the king's sight. But the heathen folk saw not but eight stags and a fawn going as it were to the wilderness. And King Loigra, with the few that had escaped, returned at dawn to Tamoria, sad, cowed, and humiliated. Chapter 19. How Patrick came to Tamoria on Easter Day, and of the faith of Duach Maku Lugir. Now, on the next day, that is, the day of the Paschal Feast, the king and princes and magicians of all Ireland were sitting at meat in Loigra's house, for it was the chiefest of their festivals. And as they were eating and drinking wine in the palace of Tamoria, and some were talking and others thinking of the things which had come to pass, St. Patrick came with five men only, the doors being shut, like we read about Christ, to contend for the holy faith and preach the word of God in Tamoria before all the tribes of the Irish people there gathered together. When, therefore, he entered the banqueting hall of Tamoria, no one of them all rose up at his approach, save one only, and that was Duach Maku Lugir, an excellent poet with whom there was staying at that time a certain young poet named Fiach, who afterwards became a famous bishop and whose relics are now venerated at Schleifte. This Duach, as I have said, alone of the heathen folk, rose up in honor of St. Patrick, and the saint blessed him, and he was the first to believe in God that day, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So when Patrick appeared, he was invited by the heathen to partake of food, that they might prove him in respect of things that should come to pass. He, however, knowing the things that should come to pass, did not refuse to eat. Chapter 20 Of the contest of Patrick with the magician on that day, and of his wonderful miracles. Now, while all were feasting, the magician Lucatmail, who had taken part in the contest at night, was eager, even that day when his comrade was dead, to contend with St. Patrick. And, to make a beginning of the matter, he put, while the others were looking, somewhat from his own vessel into Patrick's cup, to try what he would do. St. Patrick, perceiving the kind of trial intended, blessed his cup in the sight of all, and lo, the liquor was turned into ice. And when he had turned the vessel upside down, that drop only fell out which the magician had put into it. And he blessed his cup again, and the liquor was restored to its own nature, and all marveled. And after the trial of the cup, the magician said, Let us work miracles on this great plain. And Patrick answered and said, What miracles? And the magician said, 
let us bring snow upon the earth. And then said Patrick, I do not wish to bring things that are contrary to the will of God. And the magician said, I shall bring it in the sight of all. Then he began his magical incantations, and brought down snow over the whole plain to the depth of a man's waist, and all saw it and marveled. And St. Patrick said, Lo, we see this thing, now take it away. And he said, I cannot take it away till this time tomorrow. And the saint said, Thou art able to do evil, but not good. I am not of that sort. Then he blessed the whole plain round about, and the snow vanished quicker than a word could be uttered, without any rain or cloud or wind. And the multitude shouted aloud and marveled greatly. And a little after this, the magician invoked his demons and brought upon the earth a very thick darkness as a miracle, and all murmured at it. And the saint said to him, Drive away the darkness. But he could not in this case either. St. Patrick, however, prayed and uttered a blessing, and suddenly the darkness was driven away, and the sun shone forth, and all shouted aloud and gave thanks. Now, when all these things had been done by the magician and Patrick in the sight of the king, the king said to them, Throw your books into the water, and we shall worship him whose books come out unharmed. Patrick replied, I will do it. But the magician said, I do not wish to enter into a trial by water with this fellow, for water is his god. He had evidently heard of baptism by water given by Patrick. And the king answered and said, Throw them into fire. And Patrick said, I am ready. But the magician, being unwilling, said, This man worships as his god water and fire, which turn about every alternate year. And the saint said, That is not so. But thou thyself shalt go, and one of my lads shall go with thee into a house separated and shut up, and my garment shall be around thee, and thy garment around me, and thus shall ye together be set on fire, and ye shall be judged in the sight of the Most High. And this suggestion was adopted, and a house was built for them, whereof one half was built of green wood and the other half of dry. And the magician was put into the part of the house made of green wood, and one of St. Patrick's lads, named Beninius, was put with magician's robe into the part that was made of dry wood. The house was then shut up from the outside and set on fire before the whole multitude. And it came to pass in that hour that as Patrick prayed, the flame of the fire burnt up the magician with the half of the house that was made of greenwood, the cloak of St. Patrick only remaining whole, inasmuch as the fire did not touch it. Beninius, on the other hand, was fortunate with the half of the house that was made of dry wood, for as it is told about the three children, the fire did not touch him at all, nor was he alarmed, nor did it do him any harm. Only the cloak of the magician which was around him was, by the will of God, burnt up. And the king was greatly enraged against Patrick because of the death of his magician, and he almost rushed upon him, minding to slay him. But God hindered him. For at the prayer of Patrick and at his cry, the wrath of God fell upon the ungodly people, and many of them perished. And St. Patrick said to the king, Unless thou believest now, thou shalt die speedily, because the wrath of God will fall upon thy head. And the king feared exceedingly, and his heart was moved, and his whole city with him. Chapter 21 Of the Conversion of King Loigra, and of the words of Patrick concerning his kingdom after him. And so when the elders and all his senate were gathered together, King Loigra said to them, It is better for me to believe than to die. And after taking counsel, he believed on that day by the advice of his friends and turned to the everlasting Lord of Israel. 
and there many others believed as well. And St. Patrick said to the king, Because thou didst withstand my teaching and was a stumbling block to me, although the days of thy reign shall be prolonged, nevertheless none of thy seed shall be king forever. So there's St. Patrick being a Moses for Ireland. There's a made-for-TV movie from the year 2000, produced by the Fox Family Channel, that actually does try to dramatize pretty much all the major episodes from Mercury's Vita, including these contests with the Druids, with all the production values of a Hercules or Xena episode, um, and none of the self-awareness. You can find the whole movie posted to YouTube if you're curious. It's called St. Patrick the Irish Legend. Um, and here's a little taste of what you'd be in for. Remember, we are here by a higher authority. Have faith, have strength. Peace be with you this night of Easter Eve. Who lit this fire? I did. I am Patrick. Put this man to the sword! And kill this fire! By the forces of our gods, I declare that Do not invoke your gods before me. Play. Be gone! I call on the great god, Lu! Kill that man! Tell your king I wish to speak with him. Tell him I have come to lead the Irish people out of a world of darkness into a world of light. All right, to end on a higher note, I'm going to grab a little quick episode from the very end of Book One of Mercury's text. I remember as a teenager reading some article talking about lesser-known St. Patrick facts, and it mentioned a story of St. Patrick turning a wicked king into a wolf, and that Patrick is thus tied to early werewolf lore. Uh, I thought this sounded super cool at the time, and unlike any of the saints I'd learned about, uh, well, since then, I've certainly had my perspective broadened on the range of macabre miracles performed by saints uh, through reading medieval literature, but I thought I'd dig up this story as Mercury records it, and here it is. If you're expecting a snarling werewolf, you might be disappointed, but it's still an interesting final act for Mercury to close book one of his biography with. Chapter 29 of the Conflict of St. Patrick with Corotticus, King of All. I will not pass over in silence a certain wonderful deed of Patrick's, the vile action of a certain British king named Corotticus, a wretched, cruel tyrant, was reported to him. Now this man was the greatest possible persecutor and slayer of Christians. Patrick, however, endeavored by a letter to recall him to the way of truth. 
but he mocked at his salutary warnings. When, however, this was reported to Patrick, he prayed to the Lord and said, O God, if it be possible, banish this faithless man both from this world and the world to come. No long time had elapsed when he caused a magical spell to be chanted before him, from which he heard that in a brief space he would pass away from the royal throne. And all the men dearest to him broke out into language of the same purport. He then, when he was in the midst of his court, took on the spot the form of a little fox, a pitiable object, and departed in the presence of his friends, and from that day and that hour, like flowing water that passeth away, he was never seen again. These few particulars respecting the skill and the powers of St. Patrick did Mericu Macu Macthena draw up under the direction of A, Bishop of the City of Sleti. Okay, our mystery word, albeit only a few days old, uh, is still Oscar, with a lowercase o, but that doesn't actually matter all that much, uh, because this word does connect to the name. This is an old Irish word, and it means an outsider, a newcomer, or stranger. It has an opposite partner in the word tascar, meaning company. Oscar is not company, not of the household. From this core sense, it expands to also embrace, on the one hand, a non-professional or unskilled person, or on the other, a foe or enemy, a hostile outsider. And then that enemy warrior meaning broadens into Oscar being used just to mean a warrior, generally, without necessarily implying hostility or foreignness. And that usage is probably how it becomes the personal name Oscar. Though there's an alternative theory that the name Oscar comes from a different root and means dear-loving. Um, and to be yet more accurate, uh, that accounts for the Gaelic Oscar. Other forms of Oscar, such as Scandinavian Oscar, probably derive from different Germanic roots. And the modern name kind of collapses the two origins together. Uh, and after all, both the Scandinavians and the Irish did a pretty good job of getting around in Europe, so it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that there's a lot of Oscars to go around. Our new riddle for next time is this. I haunt all pale the waters of foul fens. Fortune has fashioned me a bloody name. For greedy gulps of red blood are my fare. No bones or feet or arms at all have I. Yet bite with three forked wounds, unlucky men, and by health-bringing lips, thus conquer care. I'll be back with the answer next episode, uh, which is not going to be arriving quite as miraculously fast as this one has. But while you're waiting, you can talk to me in all the old haunts. I'm at Twitter, at MDT Podcast, and I'm reachable by email at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And at the website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, you can find more information about all of our episodes, including references, and you can leave comments there, too. Um, though Twitter is definitely the more happening place for interactions these days, if I'm being honest. Um, but I'm happy to hear from you in whatever forum you prefer. So, happy St. Patrick's Day, Slancha, and thanks for listening.